Lord, we are grateful for this community. I'm so grateful for the relationships and friendships and connections that people within this church have with each other. And uh, Lord, we ask that you continue to expand that. Lord, we pray that you would continue to draw others to you through this church community, through this family of faith. And today, Lord, as we dive into your word, as we study a couple of things that we see in a particular church from a couple thousand years ago, Lord, there are still important lessons that we can learn from it. And so, Lord, I just ask that today you would speak to us, you would help us learn what we need to learn, that you would challenge us, that you would expand our hearts and minds to understand you and understand how you work in this world. And Lord, that, uh, that in, in all of it, Lord, that we would be built up, that we'd be encouraged, and that we would grow in our, our spiritual lives. So we offer this uh, message now to you, Lord, and ask that you continue to be with us as you've already been, as we've, we've begun in worship and prayer and glorifying your name. Now we pray, Lord, that you continue to be with us through the rest of this service. And I pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, two weeks ago, um, as John mentioned last week, we had kind of a little sidetrack. Because the way that Acts works is um, kind of chronologically, he, he threw in this story of what happened with Peter being dramatically um, rescued from prison through a, a, a particular prayer meeting that was happening on his behalf. And so we saw that in Jerusalem last week. But two weeks ago, we were introduced to a church in Antioch. Antioch, which is um, at the time was in Syria. It's now in modern day Turkey. We looked at the map. We talked about those things. But it was in Antioch where Christians first, or where people, believers, first were called Christians. Uh, and, and in Antioch, it was this hub for the spread of the gospel into the Gentile world. All right? Um, as I, I told you about Antioch two weeks ago with that, it was a center of culture and commerce. Antioch was a big city, uh, and a lot was going on in Antioch. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire after Rome itself and Alexandria in Egypt. And because it was so thriving and big and a center for all these people coming from all around the world, it was a very diverse city. One commentator I told you compared it to New York City. Just packed with people, lots going on from all over the place happening there. And the church experienced really incredible growth in this diverse population. And it would ultimately be kind of the hub where the rest of the, these missionaries were going to go out from, as we're going to see here today. Um, and, and it would be central in spreading the message of Jesus through the rest of the known world, really. And the other thing that we see about Antioch, as far as we can tell from Scripture, at least in this period of time in Antioch, was that it was a healthy church. This was a church that, that seemed to have things going really well. If you you know, know the rest of the New Testament, there isn't a letter to Antioch. Most of the time, the letters in the rest of the New Testament are to churches that needed some sort of help. It was usually because, oh, they were dealing with this problem or that problem, and an apostle or a leader from the church would write a letter and say, okay, I know that this is going wrong in that church. That's happening. You're having these arguments. These people aren't getting along. People have questions about this. We don't have a letter to Antioch. And I think that the reason we don't have a letter to Antioch is because it was doing really well during this period. It was, it was a healthy church. And today we're going to get just a little glimpse into the life of this church in Antioch. And I think that it's helpful for us to understand 
how it operated, and how the Lord was growing it. And then we're going to finish by looking at a spiritual practice that's mentioned here. The practice of fasting. Okay? And so really today we're looking at a a people and their practice. All right, so in chapter 12, the very last verse of chapter 12, verse 25, here's what it says. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their, excuse me, their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Um, Back at the end of chapter 11, Barnabas and Saul, they're two of the main characters that we've already been introduced to here. Barnabas and Saul had been sent back to Jerusalem from Antioch with a financial gift for the Christians there in Judea. Now, the reason they were sent back is because there in Antioch, they had had this prophetic word from this prophet that said there's going to be a famine in the region of Judea. Now, Antioch was 300 miles away uh, to the north of Jerusalem. And so what happened was the church there in Antioch said, hey, let's try to help these, these believers down there prepare for this famine. Let's gather some money and let's take a collection and let's send it down to that church so they have some resources to deal with this impending uh, famine that was going to come. And so that's where these guys have been. They've been down there in Jerusalem. And that's why it says they're, they're returning from Jerusalem. They're coming back to Antioch. And it says they brought with them a young man named John Mark. John Mark. His other name, John Mark. That was the same John Mark whose mother's house was the place where they were praying for Peter just last week, all right? John Mark, we're going to see him through Acts a bit more. John Mark is also the one who wrote the Gospel of Mark. You know, in your Bible, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Mark, that was this John Mark, this same guy, um, really writing for Peter. But this is who is there with him, all right? And now, here's what it says in chapter 13, verse 1. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets... And teachers, Barnabas, who we've already met, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Okay, um, you know, Adrian and I were talking this, this morning, and he was saying, hey, what do you do when you come across a name in the Bible that you're like, who are these people? <laughs> I'm like, that's a great question, Adrian, and I, this is a good example because here's this list of these people. And you're just like, I, Simeon Barnabas, I recognize that name. Saul, I've heard of him. What are these people? What, what's, what's going on here? Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about it. Um, because what we see here in Antioch, in this healthy church, is we see some differentiation of leadership. And one of the things that it says here is, he says that there were some prophets and teachers. All right? So these are two little words, prophets and teachers. What's that all about? But then he gives this list. Now, with this list, what I want you to notice is the location that these people are coming from. Barnabas, we know, is from the island of Cyprus, out in the middle of the Mediterranean. All right? The second name here is Simeon, who's called Niger. You might, if you know your world geography, you might know there's a country called Niger this day in the center of Africa. It's just north of Nigeria. You might have heard of Nigeria, right? You've probably got some phone calls from Nigeria. At least I have before. (laughs) You've won $5 million from a Nigerian prince who just needs you to send over your bank account and social security number and, you know, that kind of stuff, right? So Niger is a country in Africa. Niger, the the word Niger goes back to the Latin, which means dark. He's probably a dark-skinned African man, all right? So that's what we learn, okay? So we've got a guy from an island in the Mediterranean, 
We've got a guy from the center of Africa. Next, Lucius of Cyrene. Cyrene is in Libya, which is another country in Africa. All right, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. And I'm not going down the whole Herod path again this week, guys. I just talked to you about him last week, right? There's five different people named Herod in the Bible. We looked at them. This one is Herod Antipas. He was the brother of Philip who married his, his brother's wife. And then he killed John the Baptist. That's a whole other story in the Bible. But at this point, Herod Antipas, Herod the Tetrarch, he'd already been um, excommunicated and sent to Gaul. All right, he got in trouble with the emperor. All right, but this guy, so this, this person was raised in kind of the, era, the, the aristocracy of this region, connected to the high-profile political people. That's this Menaean guy, all right? And then uh, the last one in the list here is Saul, who is from Tarsus in Cilicia. So here's my point. We don't know much about any of those other people except Barnabas and Saul, the ones at each end of the list, but it's leaders from all over the world. It's a diverse group of people coming in with all their backgrounds and all their life experience, all working together, functioning in this church, all right? And specifically, it tells us they, they, were, they were prophets and teachers. So here's my observation with this. If you don't know this already, God uses different people in different ways in the church. It's not the goal of the church that every one of us become the same person. It's never been God's plan. God makes a diversity of things. You ever looked at flowers? I didn't when I was younger, but now I'm into my old age. I look at flowers, okay? How many flowers are there in this world? So many beautiful colors and types and shapes that grow all over the place, right? Just diversity, glorious diversity. God does the same thing with human beings, you might have some people that look kind of like you. Maybe your kids, maybe not. Um, you know, doppelgangers out there somewhere in the world. But generally, nobody looks the same. Nobody's even got the same set of fingerprints, right? We're very different. God has designed this planet to celebrate difference, okay? Now, I know you can get to this spot where you're like, oh, great, here comes a pastor. Now I'm going to hear about this diversity talk or whatever. Well, I understand there's certain things that can get pushed at you and things that you can push against. But yes, you're getting a diversity talk because God is about difference and he celebrates these differences, all right? And he uses different people in different ways in the church. We often describe the church as it's described in the Bible, as a body. And what does the body have? It has different parts that do different things. A hand is not a foot, an eye is not an ear, you want all of those parts on your body to function properly. And it's good for us to learn how God has uniquely made us so that we can lean into becoming the person God made us instead of trying to turn ourselves into somebody else. All right? That's how it's supposed to be. And other than Jesus, I don't believe that anyone has all the gifts. All right? Nobody does. Because if God did that, we wouldn't need each other. If you were totally self-contained, and I know we live in a world that celebrates independence, if you had everything possible to be needed on your own, you wouldn't need anybody else. You wouldn't need a church. You wouldn't need me. You wouldn't need anything. You are doing your own thing. But that's not how God has made us. He has made us to need each other. And if you're a part of this church... God has designed 
a place specifically for you in this body. And if you're not a part of this church, maybe you're just a a, a Christian that's visiting or maybe a non-Christian trying to learn about Christianity. If God leads you to settle into this particular community of faith, he has a place for you here, all right? And you're like, wait a minute, I just got here. This is my first day here. And you're already telling me I got a place here? Yes, (laughs) yes, I am. He has a place for you because God adopts people into his family every single day. This isn't a, a, you know, a once a year open enrollment time, right? Okay, we're going to take another couple. No, no, all the time, God's bringing people in. And he has a place for you. It's a family of faith where we grow and live together. Now, there are several leadership roles referred to in the Bible, all right? When you go back into the Old Testament, we see that God anoints judges and kings and prophets and priests in the Old Testament, okay? When you come up to the New Testament, Jesus uh, called to himself 12 people to be his apostles. In the early years of the church, we see that people were appointed as elders and deacons. It makes sense that God would continue to call people to serve in various leadership capacities because groups need leaders. It's just the way we are. It's the way we function as people. All right, here's two very well-known uh, verses in, in the Bible that talk about this. Ephesians 4, 11 to 12. I know eventually you guys are going to pretty much have Ephesians 4 memorized because I quote it all the time because it's one of the most important chapters in the Bible about the church. But Ephesians 4, 11 to 12 says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 27 and 28. He says, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God is appointed in the church. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. And I think that these passages are descriptive rather than prescriptive. Okay, this is what I mean by that. When, the, when and, and by the way, it's the same author, the the last guy in the list there, Saul, who becomes Paul later in this chapter, he's the one who wrote both of those passages, all right? So it's not the kind of thing where he's like, okay, here's the list, and you better make sure you have this list of these people. He's describing different ways that people are gifted to do things, okay? So I don't think it's like, all right, we got to get put those lists together, add them up, and we got to get a check, you know, we're going to have a sign up in the back, who wants to be the, you know, prophet of the church, who wants to be the one of miracles, who wants to, we're not, it's not like that, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. And, and some people do want to build these rigid organizational structures from what's described there, but it doesn't seem like that's usually how it was done, um, Paul, who, who wrote this, was a part of, of the list of prophets and teachers that's listed right here. Um, but it, it's clear later, we see that he was clearly appointed to be an apostle. All right. So when Luke, uh, the author of Acts, is, is writing this, he's describing this group of men. I think he's generally describing the leadership of the church of Antioch. He's basically saying, look, there's these guys that are from all over the place And they're serving in this leadership capacity as as prophets and teachers for the church at Antioch, rather than trying to assign official titles to them. Now, that being said, there is still a difference between that prophet and teacher. Okay? And and I think it is important for us to to get a handle on what these descriptors mean. Now, I know that, that some argue 
that, that these roles are still in use today. Others say that the era of apostles and prophets concluded and all that's left now are evangelists and pastor teachers in modern times. But what is clear is that God uses different people with different gifts in the, to build his church. And, and I believe that what we see in the Bible is, is that, that a shared leadership model of people with different gifts and different strengths working together. And I think that's the healthiest model for the church today. You've got to have people that are different working together. Um, you know, when you, you jump to the, the end of the Bible, you look at the book of Revelation, one of the things that sometimes surprises people is how in, in the end, when all things are said and done, and everybody's gathering around the throne of God, you've got people from every tribe, every tongue, every language, every race, every background, covering the entire scope and span of history. All these people gathered together, praising the Lord. Now, the, these differences actually can become strengths, and when we work together, that's where we see the, the chemistry that God has for his church. So let's consider prophets and teachers a little bit here today. I'm not going to go into the other lists because they're not, it's not here in Acts of where we're at. But from what we learn about prophets and teachers in the Bible, aside from different titles, the way that prophets and teachers approach the truth of God's word and minister to others is usually a little different. Okay? They're, they're a little bit different. I mean, when you think about a prophet, usually a prophet, if you're imagining a prophet, at least for me, there's like a little bit of weirdness to a prophet, okay? Definitely something mysterious. I tend to view my childhood imagination of, of learning about John the Baptist in Sunday school, all right? A prophet, the prophet that came and prepared the way for Jesus. And the things that I remember about John the Baptist is how the Bible describes him as he's this wild man living out in the desert, and he wears this, this handmade cloak dress thing of camel hair, says he's got a leather belt around his waist, and he's eating locusts off the ground. Okay, that's enough for my like, childhood imagination to be like, whoa, this guy, he's something, right? I'm picturing dirt under his fingernails and long hair and wild eyes. Like That's how I picture John the Baptist. Now, I could be wrong, I don't know, but that's what I, that's what I view. And when you go through the Old Testament and you see some things that the, the prophets of the Old Testament would say and do, you're like, these are wild people. This is crazy, this whole prophet thing. Now, here's the thing about prophets. What we see in Scripture is that the prophets, and, and, and we've taught this before when we've looked at prophets um, in the past, but I'm going to remind you of it. Prophets basically had uh, two different types of jobs. One of the jobs that they would have is what we would call foretelling, all right? Which means they're telling what's going to happen in the future. And that's how we picture prophets a lot. They're like, whoa, they've got like insight into the future. All right, that's foretelling. But the other thing that prophets did, and actually as you go through scripture, more of what you see prophets do is actually forthtelling. Meaning telling a particular message for a particular people at a particular time and place, all right? So you've got foretelling the future or foretelling of just telling it the way it is. Right? And, that, and that's, that's the difference there. Um, here's an example. When we talk about foretelling, the prophet Jonah is a good descriptor of that. Remember Jonah, the one that ran away from what God told him to do? What had God told him to do? He said, I'm giving you this message. 
to go to Nineveh, this massive Assyrian city, and I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to tell the people of Nineveh, 40 days from now, destruction is coming on this place. If you don't repent and get your stuff together, you're going to be gone in 40 days. All right, so he's foretelling. He's telling the future, the close future, but he's saying, hey, in 40 days, this is it. And, and that's, that's exactly what he did. He went and, and, and told that. Or when you read like um, Daniel or Ezekiel or even John who wrote Revelation, what are they describing? They're talking about things that are going to happen in the end. Things are going to happen who knows when, but whenever the end comes, this is what it's going to be like. And it's radical, some of these visions that these guys have, right? We don't even understand all the symbolism and all the imagery that's described in all these. But that would be foretelling. All right, but sometimes, like I said, and most of what they did is actually forth-telling. It's their job to tell it like it is, whether people want to hear it or not. All right, an example of that is the prophet Nathan, who was connected to David in the Bible, King David, the, the great King David. And Nathan, one of the things that God told Nathan was, listen, I'm going to send you in to the king's court, and you're going to tell King David that I know that about his adultery with Bathsheba. And you're going to go in there and you're going to call him out on it. Whew, don't want that job. <laughs> and what does Nathan do? He goes as a prophet and walks in and he's like, how am I going to do this? All right, I got an idea. I'm going to put together a little story to kind of soften him up. And so he goes into David and he says, hey, you know what? I got to tell you this, king. Um, there's this guy who lives in this city, this very city that you're in right now. And uh, he... he he had this, this sweet little lamb. He's a poor man, lives alone. All he had was this lamb in his life. And his rich neighbor came across the street, grabbed his lamb, slaughtered it, and ate it. And King David is like, what? In my kingdom? I don't think so. We're going to get that guy, and he's going to pay him back, and we're taking him out. This is bad. And then what's Nathan say? That's you, because that's what you did. You and all your wives, you went and took somebody else's only wife. And David had to deal with this message, right? That's an example of forth-telling. It's telling it how, how it is. Now, as you can imagine, having that role, that divine role of a prophet, um, routinely made prophets outcasts from the rest of the people. All right? Not only are some of them walking around eating bugs, but on top of that, they're saying hard stuff. And so because of that, it, it would create a, a distance from them with, with people. I mean, who wants a prophet as a best friend? You know, if they can look into your life like that. It's like, ah, I, I, don't, I don't want this. And many times people didn't want to hear the message. And, and so prophets would be rejected, shunned, or even killed. Prophets had to boldly proclaim the truth and could not concern themselves with whether or not the people would receive it. So with a prophet, the message has priority over even the people. The message is their main thing. Now here's just my opinion. I believe that there's still space for prophetic ministry within the modern church. Now, it's very different than things were in the Old Testament. They didn't have a Bible, guys. Um, eventually they'd get the Torah, the first five books, and then they'd start gathering some of these other writings, but they didn't have already the word of God. They needed, at times, these messages, direct messages from God to speak to the people. Um, but I do believe that God still speaks to his people. 
and, and that this is what we see in the early church. This is why um, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19 and 20 to 21, it says this. It says, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast to what is good. All right? Now, and people with a prophetic calling on their life have a sensitivity to hearing God's voice. And when they're actually connected to a church family, there's trust and rapport that can be built over time, which allows them to speak with authority and confidence in the church. I am, however, very hesitant to trust what self-proclaimed prophets have to say. Because that's the other side of what goes on here. What you see is you see excess as of people that are driving around in $400,000 cars and their, you know, super nice suits and their big watches and all this. And they walk into these churches and say, I'm prophet so-and-so, listen to what I have to say to you. And pay me X amount of dollars for me to do my thing, you know. Uh, I'm very hesitant with that, that sort of a thing. And that's what scripture tells us. Test these things. Because there are those that would exploit other people in the name of so-called prophecy. Now, so there's prophets, right? We also have teachers. Now, teachers are a lot, it's a lot easier for us to accept a teacher, the idea of a teacher, culturally. Because we have teachers in every part of life, right? But what's being described here is a spiritual teacher, okay? The role of a prophet is a spiritual role, and so is that of a teacher in the church. We're talking about a spiritual role here. But practically, teachers and prophets have a different approach. They lead in different ways. If the prophet prioritized the message above the people, they're like, I don't care if you take it or leave it, this is the message, deal with it. The teacher, uh, the, the teacher prioritizes the people's understanding above the message. Here, let me explain it this way. I'm going to take you back to third grade, all right? It's probably super different now because math has completely changed in school. But when I was in third grade, you had to learn the multiplication tables, okay? And, and that's like part of it. Third grade, like learn these multiplication tables. Some of you still probably never learned your multiplication tables. Um, but what would happen is, you know, the teacher would come by and they'd give you the, multiplica- the big old grid, 1 times 1 to 12 times 12, unless you went to a really good school and they taught you like 13 times 13. Not me. I was the schools up to 12, right? 144, still remember, all right? And there's those things that were happening on this little sheet, and so you have to learn this, all right? I pull this up as a description because a prophet and a teacher would handle this differently. A prophet would come by and say, boom, there's the multiplication table. You see the sheet right there? Learn it. See ya. Done. Did my part. There's the message. Gave him the message. Whatever they do with it, whatever they do with it. Wad it up, throw it in the paper, you know, the trash in the corner, stick it in their backpack. I don't care. I gave them the message. The teacher isn't going to do that. The teacher is going to say, okay, we've got, the, we've got the message. Here's the table. Now let's learn it together, class. Oh, we need to work on the sevens. Oh, we're, let's work with you on this, you know. The teacher is wanting, wants to get as many people as possible to understand and learn this message. Okay, so you see the difference? Now, but what bo- when both of these types of people are in a church, what happens is there's a positive tension that will naturally occur. A prophet will help push people toward God's plan, and a teacher will help pull people toward God's plan. A prophet is often faster because they're like, boom, there's the message. All right, what's the next message? 
And the teacher's like, okay, but we haven't got the first message completely yet. Let's slow this down a little bit. But what it does is the prophet goes fast, the teacher goes slow, but eventually you're kind of moving at the right pace, somewhere in between. Leaders need to learn to work together even when their natural tendencies or spiritual gifts are different. Because we're not all teachers. We're not all prophets. We're not all leaders even, guys. But we are all disciples. That's what the Bible, that's the distinguishing point. Okay? And all the various gifts are meant to build up the disciple in every way. 1 Corinthians 12, 29-31, that starts out with these rhetorical questions. He says, are all apostles? No. The answer is no. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all possess gifts of healing? No. Do all speak with tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. But earnestly desire the higher gifts. Why would we desire these gifts? Why would we want to see a diversity of leadership in our church? So that the whole body could be built up with the strength and diversity that comes from God. And let me say this, many of you are using your gifts that God's given you in the church. And we have a diversity of gifts among us. We've got different people that do different things in this church. And it's a beautiful thing. Now, I will say that there may be some of you, however, that are sitting on your gifts. And when you think about it, you're like, yeah, I don't really use the gifts that God's given me much. I'd rather just kind of come and go when I please and just you know, stay at a distance, all right? And if you're waiting for an invitation, here it is. (laughs) You are invited to use your gifts here at South Point. You might not even know what those gifts are yet, but together we would love to discover them with you. And when everyone is functioning this way, the church is healthy. That's what happens. The church becomes healthy. And and I'll tell you this, healthy churches are hard to find, Um, I don't know if it's always been that way. I just know what I've experienced in my lifetime. One of the the side benefits of of being in a Christian band when I was in my 20s was I got the opportunity to to go into a whole lot of leadership rooms in churches and Christian organizations, and some of them had it all together, and others of them were an absolute mess. And there's a whole spectrum out there. And so to find a healthy church where people love each other and are functioning together as a church, it's, it's rare. It's not easy. But it's what we should all be aiming toward. And that's the aim of our church leadership. Uh, that, that we would help you grow in every part of your spiritual life and be equipped to minister to other people. Uh, and good, healthy leadership helps with the long-term consistency towards that. So with those roles in action, the church in Antioch thrived. And we also see their activities. Okay, so let's, let's look at verse 2 and 3. Back in Acts 13, here's what it says. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. You see, God had an an expansion plan for, for the church to spread the gospel throughout the world, which is exactly what Jesus told them way back in Acts 1. Remember that? Acts 1.8, Jesus says, hey, uh, you're going to receive power and the Holy Spirit comes on you. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and then Judea and then Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That was always the plan all along. And God the Father would send people to travel into places where the message of Jesus had never been spoken. 
He'd send people on mission. It's, it's what we now call those people missionaries. Barnabas and Saul were called by God to do this very thing. But I want you to notice the activities that were happening to help bring clarity to that calling. There's a few key descriptions here that we see about the, the leadership of the church of, of Antioch. Number one, we see that they gathered together in worship, prayer, and fasting. Okay? Number two, by participating in their relationship with Jesus together, they listened for and heard the voice of the Holy Spirit together. And number three, they then reached into the world by sending Barnabas and Saul. And for those of you who have been around this church a little while, you might recognize some of those three things. They gathered together, they connected with each other, and they reached into their community. (laughs) These are kind of the three big areas that we function as a church. All right? Um, and, and, and with that, one of the things that we see that they were gathered together doing was this, this practice of fasting. Now, we've talked about several of these other things. We've talked about what it means to gather together in worship. We've talked about what it means to reach out into our community. We talked about prayer just last week. Um, but today I want to zoom in on this spiritual practice that we find here, fasting. Fasting, okay? What is fasting and what is it for? Um, you might be familiar with the term fasting because it's, it's kind of trending a little bit right now, um, especially with the health and wellness community that talks about intermittent fasting. You might have heard that people that are doing that or you run into people that say, oh yeah, I'm trying this intermittent, fast, intermittent fasting thing, which is when you don't eat food for a particular you know, time during the week, um, each day or, or each week. If you were raised in a, a Catholic uh, background, you know that the, the period of Lent is a time of prayer and fasting leading um, in the, the 40 days leading up to Easter um, with no eating meat on Fridays and usually giving up some, something other than food as well. So fasting has been around a long time, obviously. Here's a church from 2,000 years ago. And it shows up a lot of times in the Bible. Usually it's with individuals that are fasting. Uh, people like David and Moses and Daniel and Esther and Ezra, Nehemiah, Paul, Jesus. But also with groups. We see groups that fasted together as a church, like they were doing here as a leadership team, um, as an army, as a nation. And by the time of Jesus, it was common that the Pharisees would fast twice a week. Why would they do this? Why do we fast? What is the spiritual practice of fasting? Um, What's the impact of it? Because one thing that people think is, oh, I do it to get God's attention. That's why I would fast. I'd be like, hey, God, down here, I skipped dinner for you. You see me down here? No dinner. Went right past it, you know? Or, hey, I really need to get your attention up there. You know, I don't know what's going on, but I've been praying and you're not answering. And so I'm not going to eat all day. Kind of like a hunger strike or something, right? That's not what fasting is. That's not what fasting is all about. Because here's what you have to understand. The people of God always have his attention. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're his child. He cares. He's paying attention to you all the time, whether you're fasting or not. Okay, so that's not why we're fasting. Abstaining from something, even something essential like food, can shift us to a place of physical weakness, which can also open us to a place of spiritual strength and clarity. 
And that's just one of the side effects that happens with something like fasting. No spiritual practice has any power in itself. There's no power in just the the activity of any of these practices. They're meant to bring us before God, who is the source of all spiritual power. Fasting might have health benefits. That's why so many people are trying it. But that isn't what we do it for when we're using it as a spiritual practice. We fast from a desire to draw near to God and then let him work in our lives. Just like last week when we saw the church see these extraordinary results, <coughs> excuse me, extraordinary results from the extraordinary method of prayer, fasting has its own unique results. Um, in Matthew chapter 4, we see that Jesus fasted for 40 days. He went 40 days without food. And, and by the way, that is not something for you to just try off the bat, okay? Our bodies are not um, uh, trained to do that. If you are interested in fasts of a long time, there's books to read, there's things to study before you go and try to pull that off, okay? But Jesus fasted for 40 days. Um, and he used it as a time to prepare himself for the ministry ahead. He emptied his body of food, but he focused on his father and then fueled himself with spiritual power and spiritual focus. And then after that, he was prepared to start into his ministry and also ready to deal with the temptation that the devil himself was about to throw at him. He fasted for 40 days and then boom, right at his weakest, here comes the devil. And he, he blasted that temptation. Fasting has a way of impacting our souls differently than other practices. It has a way of exposing the things that control us. In, in my experience of fasting, I've sometimes found that, that I get a different perspective uh, that I couldn't seem to get any other way. I've heard other people describe profound spiritual breakthroughs in their life that only seem to happen through fasting. And when we see these results in Scripture and in the testimony of others, we should recognize the value of fasting and we should practice it, okay? I want you to not just know about fasting. You should also try to include it into your life. And so I want to help you toward that. I'm finishing here, guys. We're wrapping it up. But next month, I'd like to invite all of you to join us with an all-church time of prayer and fasting, okay? We're going to set aside March 10th to the 24th, a two-week time, um, for that very purpose. Now, we're not asking you to give up food for two weeks, okay? Calm down. <laughs> um, now, you might feel led to fast from food uh, at some point in this period, but what we really want to do is encourage you to make a commitment to put something aside and focus on the Lord in its place, all right? And so, um, you know, for the, this, this next while, um, because we know there are so many things fighting for our attention in this life, aren't there? There's certain things that you just always go back to. I got a free minute. Oh, I got to check my phone. I got to, oh, I got to call somebody. I've got to do this. I want to watch that. I, there's always something. Um, so over the next couple of weeks, I want to encourage you to, to begin to think and pray about what it is that you might be able to set aside as an opportunity to just lean into the Lord and lean into the growth that he might want to have in your life. Now, I would love for this to include everybody that's part of the church family. Um, and, and so we're going to include the, the youth and the children in this as opportunities as well. Um, so that you can have even conversations at home 
about what God's showing you, what you're thinking about, what you're learning in this practice. I know it won't be easy, but I think that we'll be able to see some spiritual growth as a church if we do this together. And, and I think that it is a step toward individual spiritual growth, but can also provoke, promote overall health in the church family. So I would really ask that you would pray about it as you consider it. All right? And, and as time gets closer, we'll, we'll continue to give you some more information about it, talk about that more, um, and, and help you, you process through it. Well, that's, that's all the time that we've got um, here today for this um, message. So let's, let's, uh, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word here today. And I thank you for this little picture that we have of a healthy church in Antioch. And God, as we study it and as we think about it, Lord, we pray that, that you would do the same thing among us. We are so blessed, Lord, that I believe you have made us a healthy church. And um, I believe that's because you put that on our hearts in the very beginning of this church. And, and I think that you have done it. I think you're the initiator of it. And Lord, we thank you for that today. And God, I pray that you would continue that. And I know that um, continued health and growth is, a pro- is, is progress. It's, it's, there's motion in it. And uh, Lord, I just ask that you continue us as a church, as individuals on that path of growth and health and life. Your word tells us that you came for that reason, that we would have an abundant life. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us in that. Lead us toward you. Lead us toward your way. And God, as we talked also today about this spiritual practice of fasting, God, I I pray that that you would begin to stir in our hearts uh, a desire for you and a desire for things of you. And I know that some people may have heard this this morning, like, ah, count me out. I don't want to do that. Uh, But Lord, I pray that you would impress on their hearts whatever it is that, that you might want them to do. And that in it, you'd encourage them to experience you in this way so that we can all grow and we can all see the benefit of, of putting these practices in practice. And so we just pray that you'd help us with that and you'd guide us in that. And Lord, as we um, shift now into a time of uh, response and reflection, as we think about what you might be speaking to us today, as you might be speaking to us about our week ahead, we just pray that we'd have a real sensitivity to you and to your word, that we would sense that, know that, and also, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts to receive communion as we're going to do that here together as a church. And, uh, and Lord, in it, that we could just worship you and glorify you. And I pray these things in your name. Amen.